Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is an audio-only version of a Then and Now video. To see the full video, search Then and Now on YouTube. Enjoy. Here's a murder mystery for you. A real whodunit. In 1991, two tourists were hiking in the German Alps when they discovered a body which they presumed was a recently deceased mountaineer. It turns out Otzi, as he came to be known, was a mountaineer of sorts, just a 5,200 year old one. He was so well preserved in the ice that scientists know how old he was when he died, what he had for lunch, that he wore a backpack, had an axe and dagger, a bow, a quiver of arrows, snowshoes, and importantly he had a cut hand and an arrowhead embedded in his back. In Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Pinker writes that Otzi had not fallen in a crevice and frozen to death as scientists had originally surmised. He'd been murdered. Pinker declares that Otzi had belonged to a raiding party clashing with a neighbouring tribe. Let's put Otzi on ice for one sec. Pinker uses him as one piece of evidence in a broader argument that human violence has declined across history. The Better Angels of Our Nature is a monumental and impressive book, clocking in at around 800 pages of graphs, statistics, anecdotes and literary references. Today, I want to look specifically at a part of Pinker's and Thomas Hobbes's argument that life in a state of nature before civilization was solitary, nasty, brutish and short. Among other things, Pinker argues that hunter-gatherers, tribal societies were, and are, much more violent than later, more civilised societies. Both Pinker and Hobbes argue that the state and its monopolisation on force and authority have pacified our darker human instincts. Consequently, human nature, pretty bad, and civilization, pretty good. 
This fits with another claim that's often made, that war is a part of human nature. In the 1996 book War Before Civilization, for example, archaeologist Lawrence Keeley argues that prehistoric violent deaths probably ranged from around 7 to 40% of all deaths. He says, there's nothing inherently peaceful about hunting, gathering, or banned societies. In 2003, Steve LeBlanc and Catherine Register claimed in their book Constant Battles that everyone had warfare in all time periods. Biologist Edward Wilson asked, are human beings innately aggressive? Yes, coalitional warfare is pervasive across cultures worldwide. John Tooby and leader Cosmedes declare that wherever in the archaeological record there is sufficient evidence to make a judgment, there traces of war are to be found. It's found across all forms of social organisation, in bands, chiefdoms and states. And the book Demonic Males argues that across history there is no evidence of a truly peaceful society. And Steven Pinker, finally, has written that Hobbes was right, Rousseau was wrong. So that's the charge. Violent, warmongering, and innately aggressive. But just on an intuitive level, these statements seem curious. On the one hand, yes, war is everywhere. We turn on our televisions, go to the movies, read the newspapers, and hardly a day goes by without seeing or hearing about some war in some way. On the other hand, the vast majority of us wake up every morning and go about our lives without managing to get into a brawl or stumbling into a military conflict. But surely we can't be inherently warlike and innately peaceful. Surely peace is the norm and violence the exception, not the other way round. So was it Hobbes or Rousseau who was right? Has violence declined because of the state? What does this tell us about human nature? Were we noble savages or nasty beasts? Let's find out. few different types of evidence have been drawn upon here. We've often been compared to our closest living animal relatives, chimpanzees, who spend quite a lot of time fighting, murdering and eating their own kind. And millions of years old fossils found in one site of our ape-like ancestors, Australopithecus, seem to show that 80% of them in that site had had their heads bashed in. We are, many have argued, just another killer ape. But bonobos and gorillas are much more peaceful than chimpanzees. Primatologist Franz de Waal has written that if we focused on bonobos, reconstructions of human evolution might have emphasised sexual relations, equality between males and females, and the origin of the family instead of war, hunting, tool technology, and other masculine fortes. And those bashed in Australopithecus heads? It was later argued that the skull damage was from leopard bites and ecological pressure from fossilisation. Ultimately, comparing us to a different species has very little to say about human nature. To understand that, we need to dig into, well, the humans. Let's return to Otzi. 
It turns out that the bow was unfinished. His dagger was a third a length of a kitchen knife, good for skinning things, probably. His arrows were useless. In other words, Otzi was not a warrior or a raider, but a hunter. Here's an alternative to Pinker's scenario that he was murdered. He was hunting, as he did almost every day dressed in fur, in low-visibility blizzard conditions, and got hit by a stray arrow. Consider this. Even today, around a thousand hunters are accidentally shot in the US every year. If you're a hunter today, you're more likely to be killed by accident than be murdered. But the point is this. It's anecdotal, arbitrary. We don't know, looking at this evidence. So, Let's look at Pinker's more substantive evidence. Let's have a quick look at this graph from the beginning of Pinker's Better Angels. It's a graph that depicts violence declining over time. You see, like this. Let's have a look at the actual graph. At the bottom here, Pinker says that the average rate of violent death today is around 1%. Across the 20th century, it was around 2%. That's including world wars. And then there's the earlier states like ancient Mexico, which he clocks in at around 5%. Then he says he's lumped together, that's his words, not mine, horticulturalists and hunter-gatherers, 24.5%. Then the average of just hunter-gatherers, that's 14%. And finally, right at the top, in prehistoric hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists found by archaeologists, 15%. We started off nasty, Pinker concludes, we're pacified by civilization. Well, actually then, this was pretty accurate. Conclusive, case closed, let's dive in. We'll start with modern-day hunter-gatherers. How violent are they? Remember, Pinker claims that 14% died violently. That's quite a lot. Anthropologists Brian Ferguson and Douglas Fry argue that the data Pinker uses is cherry-picked and inaccurate. For a start, all eight societies are from a single study published in 2009. A small sample, then. Take the Ake of Paraguay, by far the highest violent death rate in the list at around 30%. Except when you look at the original study, you find that all the deaths involved frontiersmen and ranchers. The Ake, the original study says, were being relentlessly pursued by slave traders and attacked by Paraguayan frontiersmen while apparently desiring a peaceful relationship with their neighbours. The same applies to the Hiwi of Venezuela and Colombia. Every single death involved colonists and ranchers, and included one massacre. How about the Casaguaran actor of the Philippines? Well, that 5% figure is based on an anthropologist's account of nine deaths that happened, quote, in the context of an influx of immigrant colonists into the area, and the resulting cutback of forests and the decline of game and of fish, which then led to fighting. Two of those deaths were carried out by immigrant farmers. Okay, how about the Iorio of Bolivia and Paraguay? Oh, hang on, they're horticulturalists, not hunter-gatherers, so we'll strike them off the list, as we should the Modoc of America. 
This is one common problem with studying modern hunter-gatherers. They've often been contaminated by colonists, imperialists, slave traders, globalization, or just simple farmers. So this has nothing to do with what they'd have been like thousands of years ago in a state of nature. Another problem here is that scholars studying violence are also more likely to study, guess what, more violent societies. 20% of Pinker's data here comes from one guy called Napoleon Shannon who, to put it mildly, seems like a bit of a character. His studies have been roundly criticised by other anthropologists and he annoyed tribes so much he was banished from one of them. Taking a different approach, Fry looks at a cross sample of 186 cultures studied by anthropologists. 21 are described as nomadic foragers, and in only 8 of the accounts do we see war mentioned. In 7 out of 21, homicide was reported as rare, very rare, low, or never mentioned. And Fry also looked through the anthropological literature for mentions of cultures that lacked war, looking for statements like these. Quote, the Vedas live so peacefully together that one seldom hears of quarrels among them, and never of war. And another said that warfare in the sense of organised intertribal struggle is unknown among the Aranta. What fighting there is is better understood as an aspect of juridical procedure than as war. He found 70. 7-0. 70. Compared with this. Let's move on. What does the archaeological record say? Surely there we can find a real state of nature. Evidence for prehistoric warfare usually comes from four categories. Art, depictions of violence, tools and weapons, then ditches, walls, fortifications and the like, and most importantly, skeletal remains with cuts, shattered bones or embedded projectile points. Let's have another look at Plonker's, uh, Pinker's average. 15% died violently based on 21 archaeological sites around the world. Jebel Sahaba, for example, in the Sudan from at least 10,000 BC clocks in at a whopping 40%. This is our earliest, clearest evidence for war. 24 out of 59 bodies there were found with arrowhead-like projectiles in them. But as some have argued, these could have been buried with them. They were lifelong hunters, after all. I mean, I'd certainly like to be buried with my treasured hunting mace. But this is a high figure, nonetheless. Then there's the oldest graveyard in the Sahara though, Gebero in Niger, from around the same time, where 0% show signs of violent death. Voloshko and Vasile in Europe from around the same time do show a high proportion of remains with fractures and signs of violence. This is the earliest evidence of warfare in Europe. Then there's 2 out of 60 that look violent from Kalamnata in Algeria. One has a projectile, but when we look at the original source, the other death is described as likely a collision with a rock, not violence. Come on, Stephen. Now, the Pacific Northwest coast of America was very, very violent and had defendable sites with walls, etc. But let's pause a minute. Notwithstanding the problems already alluded to, like our friend Otzi, 
Surely hunting accidents were more common. Surely people were hunted more by predators. Surely lithics, that's arrowheads, tools and weapons could be buried with the person as ceremonial. And what if war deaths were simply respected more, buried more ceremonially, like we often do today? All of this would absolutely distort the record. And look at these top two sites from South Dakota in 1325 and Nubia in 10,000 BC. They're doing a lot of heavy lifting here on this very tiny data set. Can we not do better? Anthropologist Brian Ferguson takes a closer look at the evidence. One survey of 2,000 to 3,000 skeletal remains found in France showed 48 with projectile wounds. That's 1.9% and it's not on Pinker's list. One site in Britain of 350 individuals showed about 2% died of violent death. Again, not on Pinker's list. 418 individuals in Serbia, Romia, 2.3%, not on Pinker's list. Another study we can find looks at Japan between 13,000 and 800 BC and of 2,500 adults finds 2% died potentially violently, not on Pinker's list. Anthropologist Ivana Radovanovic has looked at 1,107 remains from Europe, including all the cases on Pinker's list, and has concluded that you could maybe average out at 3.7% for a low estimate and 5.5% for a high estimate. In short, not 15%. Now, I don't think you can accurately scientifically gauge this, but for Pinker's sake, we'll take the high estimate, 5.5%. I think that's more than fair. But let's pause again. There's another problem here. All the examples on Pinker's list come from after the invention of farming. They're all after about 10,000 BC. These people aren't simple hunter-gatherers at all. A quick history lesson then. The Homo genus, that species that are human-like, evolved from Australopithecus, that's the southern ape, around two million years ago. The first humans were called Homo habilis, then Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalis, and several others. But modern Homo sapiens first arrived on the scene around 200,000 years ago. All of Pinker's examples are from around 12,000 years ago and later. Hang on. I'm going to need a bigger graph. Two meters. <laughs> He's left 95% of human existence unaccounted for. His graph starts here. So what happened around 12,000 years ago? Here, the Neolithic Revolution, otherwise known as the Agricultural Revolution. 
the advent of civilization, the emergence of sedentary society, static cultures. What anthropologists call complex hunter-gatherers emerged around this time. They used a mix of hunting, gathering and farming, the domestication of animals. Their societies had higher population densities, they were more permanent, they stored resources and had more inequality. High status individuals are more commonly found buried with rare artifacts. All of Pinker's evidence is from after this point, this tiny point of human society, after agriculture, after the start of civilization. So hang on, Stephen, what happened here? The oldest suggestion of war in Europe that's often cited comes from around three quarters of a million years ago. An excavation of Spain shows signs of cannibalism, but this was a different species, Homo antecesor, with a completely different brain. So we can scrap that. Some Neanderthals have signs of skull fractures that could be violence, but as we've seen could also be leopard bites, and again they're a different species, so scrap that. Cave art like this has often been cited as evidence of warfare, but why are the lines wavy? And like our own culture, art could be a warning against rare and dangerous warfare and not evidence for its ubiquity and frequency. Uh, this period is called the Paleolithic, the Old Stone Age. So let's concentrate on this. What does the evidence say? Well, one study looked at 103 remains found across Europe and found a violent death rate of 1%. Another looked at 209 remains in France and found five fractures, although none were on the left side of the head, which you'd expect if they were the result of human violence. Even so, let's say 2%. And, well, that's about it. In one overview of the evidence from Eastern Europe, archaeologist Pavel Delukhanov wrote that in no cases could one find any evidence of intergroup conflict. Commenting on the total record, Henry de Lumley has written that the first Homo sapiens do not seem to have led the warrior's life so often attributed to them, for their pathology is not marked by a traumatology other than that caused by the accidents of everyday life. An anthropologist, Leslie Sponsor, has written that during the hunter-gatherer stage of cultural evolution, which dominated 99% of human existence on the planet, lack of archaeological evidence for warfare suggests that that it was rare or absent for most of human prehistory. So that 15% for this period, so far on scant evidence, we could bring it down to 2%. So now we have 2% for hunter-gatherers, up to 5% for the post-agricultural revolution, 7% for modern hunter-gatherers, 5% for early states, and 3% for the 20th century. Fry writes that the idea that 15% of prehistoric populations died in warfare is not just false, it's absurd. So what happened? War likely emerged at the end of the Ice Age, with the advent of farming around 10,000 BC. 
this came with a big shift in socio-economic conditions, including a shift to sedentary existence, settlements becoming bigger and denser, a growing population, resource concentration, harvests stored, for example, excess resources, hierarchy, enclosures showing signs of social segmentation, clear inequality, and the use of salt, seashells, and obsidian to trade with. It seems like the first wars and increases in violence were not associated with savages, hunter-gatherers, or nomadic tribes, but with civilization. One anthropologist has described this as the formative period of warfare. After the Neolithic Revolution, Ferguson says, war had become a cultural obsession across Europe. Often, wars and violence could have been the result of competition over favourable locations or responses to climatic shocks, but war does not extend forever backwards, Ferguson writes. It has identifiable beginnings. The increase in warfare across this period is clear in case after case. After the 6th millennium BC, we have signs of war becoming an enduring phenomenon. Take Bulgaria. Neolithic stone settlements began in the 6th millennium BC, then slowly in the 5th millennium we see more defendable locations with fortifications, then in 4500 BC we see more weapons, arrows, maces, axes. Or take the northwest coast of North America. About 5,000 years ago, the evidence suggests, non-lethal injuries were dominant, maybe pointing to some kind of juridical interpersonal violence, maybe contests. Warfare comes later, with evidence of the first large-scale war appearing just 1,700 years ago. In the Middle East, a similar time sequence shows villages without walls or ditches being replaced by an increase in defensive structures and fortifications around 7,000 years ago. Or take the Anasazi of the American Southwest. From 700 to 1200 AD, that's 500 years, there are zero signs of warfare. Then the climate changed, and by 1250 we see war. John Carman and Anthony Harding have written that the Anasazi coexisted peacefully for more than a thousand years, then quote, the violence markers of raiding, killing and burning appear only very late in Anasazi culture as a complex response to changing demographic patterns and a prolonged period of severe environmental stress. Ferguson says that wherever you look, war sprung out of a warless world. Ultimately, complex hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists might make war, but the majority of simple hunter-gatherers don't. Fry argues that war should not be depicted by a curve like this, a downward curve, but by an n-type curve like this. He laments that Pinker constructs his account of steadily more peaceful human existence starting not at the raising of the curtain, and not even in the middle of the play, but only in the final act. So what can we learn from all of this? Let's return to Pinker briefly. One estimate for the rate of violent death in the first half of the 20th century is 3%. Including the second half, this drops to as much as 1%. And in 2007, 0.04% died violently worldwide. 
and most agree that there has been a decline in violence over a certain period of time, but whether the state and its monopolization on force is the cause of that is a different question. Pinker does, of course, talk about other motivators for later periods, but that's a different video. I'll come back to that in a minute. The central point for us is that if we're serious about asking what people were like in a state of nature, then surely nomadic hunter-gatherers are the most central to that human nature, and ultimately, historically, they're relatively peaceful and have nothing like what we'd call war. Those hunter-gatherers didn't have access to medicine, healthcare, the life-saving technology that modern societies have. How much does this distort the figures? The Cambridge Encyclopedia of Hunters and Gatherers tells its readers that the evidence suggests that hunter-gatherers have lived together surprisingly well, solving their problems among themselves, largely without recourse to authority figures and without a particular propensity for violence. It was not the situation that Thomas Hobbes described in a famous phrase as the war of all against all. You could say then that Rousseau was right, Hobbes was wrong. Ultimately, though, human nature is elastic, context-dependent. It varies across societies and cultures and history. You might say that it's within human nature to have the capacity for warfare, but you could also say it's within human nature to have a capacity to make balloon animals or play the oboe. What's more interesting is the context. What motivates war and what stimulates peace and cooperation? That's a question I'll return to next time, but for now I'll leave you with this quote from Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The first man who, after enclosing a piece of ground, took it into his head to say, this is mine, and found people simple enough to believe him, was the true founder of civil society. How many crimes, how many wars, how many murders, how many misfortunes and horrors would that man have saved the human species, who, pulling up the stakes or filling up the ditches, should have cried to his fellows, be sure not to listen to this imposter. You are lost if you forget that the fruits of the earth belong equally to us all, and the earth itself to nobody. Well, I've absolutely loved making this video. It's been a challenge, but I've learned a hell of a lot about things I had no idea about before. Lots of archaeology, anthropology, the Paleolithic Revolution, lots about prehistory. It's just been great. Next time, I'm going to continue along a similar track, but go back to Hobbes and see what we can learn from this about Hobbes and the state and look at some anarchism. So join me for that. And if you want to help support videos like this one and that one and many others I've got planned in the future, you can go to patreon.com forward slash then and now or click the link in the description below and support me for as little as a dollar per month. It's the only way these videos get made. So thank you so much to all these people, all these wonderful people for doing that. And if not, just hit subscribe, like, and remember to click that bell. Um, see you next week.